Trawler Talk, the podcast for trawler nuts and long-range cruising enthusiasts. As the signature podcast of Passage Maker Magazine, Trawler Talk aims to engage, educate, and inspire as we dive into the very best of the long-range cruising lifestyle. I'm your host, Andrew Parkinson. This episode is brought to you by Outer Reef Yachts. As a leading manufacturer of award-winning long-range motor yachts, Outer Reef specializes in building robust blue water yachts, offering luxury, efficiency, safety, and technological ingenuity. With boats ranging from 58 to 115 feet, Outer Reef has the perfect model to suit any cruising lifestyle. To learn more, visit OuterReefYachts.com. The Trawler. It's more than a boat. It's a lifestyle adopted by the adventurous at heart who enjoy long-term cruising. From waterway cruisers and great loopers to coastal cruisers and ocean crossers, the trawler is the vehicle that binds us, where the galley is of equal importance to the engine room, and horsepower is as essential to us as the air we breathe. In this episode, we're going to unpack what the trawler life really means and learn a few tips from some cruising experts along the way. Joining us on the podcast today are longtime cruising veterans and Trawler Fest presenters, Captain Chris and Elise Caldwell and Rudy and Jill Sachet. I think a great place to start is let's talk about your boats. Yeah, our boat's a single screw large rudder, full kill, full displacement, and heavy displacement wood boat. When we were thinking of building the boat, first of all, Rudy did a lot of research and he was asking, should we use fiberglass? Should we use wood? Should, should we use aluminum or steel? And finally, one day, the answer came through one of the people that we were discussing this with, another builder. He says, use whatever material you enjoy working with the best. And Rudy says, ah, that's wood. That's what we'll use. That's a great point. Yeah. It is. If you're going to build your boat, you've got to enjoy it. Yeah, and be able to fix it yourself, too. Otherwise, it's work. (laughs) That's right. And our boat was a a twin-engine, full-displacement hull built in the United States. And we love boating. And more boats that we go on now, we see that they have stabilizers and they have thrusters and they have all these wonderful gadgets that are terrific. But we didn't have that on our boat. And that was okay, too. And part of the cruising or the trawler lifestyle is displacement hulls and displacement speeds. So displacement speeds for our 44-foot boat was about 6.5, pushing it at 7. What's your speed, Rudy? Well, we typically go between 5 and 6. If we put our sails up, we might get another knot. And your horsepower in your single diesel? Well... We say 40 horse, but if we want to impress you, we'll say 42. Okay. <laughs> and then our boat was a production-built boat, and we had twin 130 horsepower Perkins diesels. So the point is, you don't need a lot of horsepower to go displacement speed, and that translates into the economies in your wallet at the end of the week, at the end of the month, at the end of the year. We cruise very economically because we're not burning fuel, we're sipping fuel. That's true, and we also, we started off on a budget, and so that's another reason we thought about full displacement, to be able to go a little slower, but we're still going to enjoy our time and getting there. And talking about budgets, when we left for a year to go cruising, we just never went back. We kept going and going because we thought it was going to take buckets of money, and it turns out if you can do an awful lot yourself, if you can do your maintenance, if you do enjoy all of that, you can do it for a lot less than you might think, especially when you're sipping economically on your little diesel engines. 
and how you started out, I think we were just talking before, it was really, a, it was going to be a three-hour tour, right? And, <laughs> and it ended up being a little bit longer than that. So yes. tell us about that. What, what changed? Well, we cruised a lot when we were still in the corporate world. I was a director of nursing. Chris was in chemical instrumentation sales. And we would take three-day weekends. We would take uh, a week or a weekend on both sides. And we would cruise out of New Orleans, which is where our home base was. And we would cruise the Mississippi um, Gulf Coast. And we loved it so much. And we decided, you know, most of the people that go cruising do it when they retire. And we were very young when we left. <laughs> we were, we're not so young now, but we were very young then. And we thought, we'll just take sabbaticals for a year and go cruise. And it was one of those, um, yeah, we thought about it, but we always thought we would do it when we retired. And things happen. Life keeps coming at you. And so we decided now's the time. Let's take a bite of that apple. I want to talk about long range cruising for a minute. What's it like to spend significant amounts of time together on a boat? What are some challenges that couples face with this type of extended cruising and what tips can you share? We have, or I have two issues. One is there's a lot of times where I just feel like giving it up, but I get a good night's sleep and I feel refreshed the next day and I'm willing to continue. The other one is Jill and I may become at odds with each other at times. And our technique is we just leave each other alone until one of us starts talking again. Now, it might take a day, it might take a week. I think two weeks is our longest, but. <laughs> but one of the things that has uh, helped with tensions when you first start on a boat is learning the boat, yes. learning how to operate the boat and doing it as a team and learning similar communication, um, just figuring out what works and getting routines down. Otherwise, it's a lot of chaos that leads to yelling, that leads to, leads to friction. I'm sure you guys have probably had similar situations. So one of the things that we will preach to anyone who will listen is the communication has got to be two ways. You've got to be able to acknowledge that someone spoke. If you acknowledge, then they know they, they were heard. They were heard over the engine noise. They were heard over the radio squawking. They were heard over the, the wind that, that happens. And so therefore, if they answer, you know they heard you. If they didn't answer, you just need to say it again. And the answer that second time is going to be either, okay, I heard you, or nothing because they still didn't hear you. It's never going to be, I heard you the first time <laughs> because if they heard you the first time, they should say that. And that works so well for so many things. But when you've got your routines that you're doing, then it definitely has to work. But then for everything else, it works great. Another woman said to me a long, long time ago when I asked the question, what does it do for your relationships when you're together on a boat for so long? And she says, well, here's the deal. If you have a good relationship, it'll be amazing at the end of your cruise, however long or short it is. You'll build a team together. It'll be so terrific. If you don't have a good relationship, don't go. Good point. Something else to keep in mind when you buy a house, you buy a floor plan. Bedrooms here, kitchen there, living right. room somewhere else. You might have a split with the kids' bedrooms on one side, your bedroom on the other side. Our boat has a master stateroom aft. It's a sun deck motor cruiser trawler. So we've got a large deck outside for a table and a large cabin inside from gunnel to gunnel. And then in the middle of the boat where the engines are, we've got the salon or the saloon. And then forward, we've got the galley and the guest stateroom forward. So we've got the separation of the two different bedroom staterooms 
and we actually kept an office in the guest room forward. We took a thin sheet of plywood, laid it on the V-berth, we had a desk. It was great. And then when we finished, we slid the plywood under the mattress, and then our guests could come sleep in the V-berth. That's smart. Thing, it's so, simple. It's always amazing to me to see the, some of those unique, flexible uses of space and how people can, can take something that's not built into the boat. And I think in the liveaboard community, that's where you find the masters of that craft, being able to repurpose and make the best and most efficient I found space. a space that was about, I don't know, eight inches tall above my water tank underneath the master bed. That was the size of the bed. It could fit 12 shoe boxes. Now you might think that I was gonna put shoes in there. No, that was where my Christmas decorations were stored. You have to get creative with every little space, every little piece that you're going to. I think the important thing also is there's no one right way to do any of this. You just don't want to do it wrong. Going back to the floor plan again, a lot of newer boats have got pilot houses. Oh, that's so you can look at the pilot houses being the man cave or the she shed. <laughs> or the place you can enjoy your coffee in the morning sun or the place you enjoy a cold drink in the evening at the sunset. So there's different boat designs. You just got to find out what floor plan works for you. People would ask us, how many square feet is your boat for living space? I never wanted to measure it because it never felt too small for me. Yeah. Yet, you know, you could, if you did start feeling closed in, all you had to do, like you were saying yesterday, you just open the door and look at what you've got to look at. Look at your backyard, look at what you've got for space. So I just never wanted to know how, how large my boat really was. And keep in mind, you always have waterfront property and you're not paying taxes on it. <laughs> Let's talk about a subject that's near and dear to all of our hearts. Food. The galley. What sort of challenges does one face when adapting from the home kitchen to the boat galley? First of all, many of us are just cruising coastally. And I mean, including the Bahamas, around the East Coast, the Gulf Coast, the Great Lakes, the, the river systems, all of that, even the West Coast of, of the United States. You're never that far from a grocery store. It's really not that hard. Even in the Bahamas, you've got opportunities. They might be a slightly different brand than what you're used to, but you're not going to starve with what's there. But there are some things that if you really have to have your particular brand of coffee or chips or something, what's happened lately, you can get Amazon to deliver it almost anywhere. So it's really not that difficult. Now, if you want to do a few weeks away from land, there's ways to do it. And you can grow some of your own things. You can grow lettuce, believe it or not. Certain vegetables and such will last longer than others. So you can buy for the idea that, well, I'm gonna eat this first and that next. And then as things start to get a little bit questionable, we're gonna cook them so that it's not a problem there. What we do is we stock with the basic dry goods, beans, rice, pasta, flour, sugar, spices, herbs, then we go into canned goods, and then for four to five day outlook, we will buy fresh. We have the basic all-around cookbook outfitted with a thousand and one different sauces to make, and then some specialty like a Chinese cookbook or seafood cookbook. So we don't really go hungry. When we built our boat, we were fortunate enough to be able to think through how we wanted our galley laid out. And I would say that for a 34-foot boat, we have probably one of the bigger galleys that you'll find on a boat that size because that was very important to us to be able to cook comfortably yeah. and 
the way we did back in the house, really. Well, I hate to say this easy. because a lot of boats aren't built this way, but we believe counter space is important. Mm -hmm. So we have stove, a sink, an ice box, a lot of shelving and storage. Everything else is counter space because without counter space, you can't really cook. You have to have the right tools for the right job, and that includes the right cutting board, the right knives, the right pots to cook in, all of that. Don't just go different than the way you would cook at home. If you cook and you love to cook, I tell people now the latest thing is Instapot. If that's what you really want and your power management can handle things like that, then bring it. You'll find a place to stow it. If it's important to you, you'll find a place to stow it. But by the same token, if you want to be adventurous and try new things, well, that's the opportunity that you can have to try new things. I think the important thing is you can do it your way. You don't have to do it somebody else's way. That's right. One important thought, canned goods do not belong the autopilot compass. Ah, no canned <laughs> goods, no toolboxes, no drills or grinders. So let's unpack that a little bit because this episode is about getting started. And it sounds like there may have been a lesson or two learned the hard way. Tell us about it. Okay, the... The compass that goes with an autopilot is actually a magnetic compass. It's a flex gate compass is one of the terms used for it. It's magnetic and it finds a magnetic north pole. And then you can distract it by putting ferrous metal items like tools, drills with electric motors, magnets, cell, phone. cell phones, <laughs> handheld radios, Wiring. canned food, wire, spiral wire. If it distracts the compass on your dashboard that you can see, it will distract the compass under the floor that you can't see. When you buy a boat, find out where that compass is and make a mental three-foot circle around it. That's the, the no magnetic zone because the compass is there. And now, is that why you were gone for much longer than you originally planned? <laughs> Fortunately, we had enough fuel that we could find our way back home. Yeah, so let's talk about the cruising aspect in general. Um, how do you break out division of labor? Obviously, you know, hours on end to be at the helm is kind of a long time. How do you decide who does what and when you do it? Jill does it all. No. <laughs> Good answer. Well, okay, secret to a happy marriage. <laughs> well, some of it came kind of over time. It was an evolution. But I found that I enjoyed, obviously, more of the galley aspects and the interior of the boat. But I also learned, le learned to really like navigation. Whereas Rudy is more the engine guy, but he sits also sits at the helm more as far as just you know day to day running the boat. But I'll do pre planning of figuring out where we're going to be the next day, what are our options for anchoring marinas, and what is our long term goal, and doing some compass headings to try to get there or figuring out are we going to run into shoals on the intercoastal waterway? Do we need to plan for currents and tides? In other words. The jobs have just naturally gravitated to the one who enjoys either doing it more or to the other person who enjoys doing it less more. <laughs> well said. Well said. When, when we first started cruising together, when we first started boating together, Chris had eons more experience than I did. I was the boat rider. I was the baby of the family. So I was kind of good at the, the getting the stuff together and planning the trip, but not necessarily doing much more than whatever the lines were at the time that he needed me to move. That was my job. And as time went on and we got larger boats, I said, you know what? I would like to be able to drive this. And he said, I was waiting for you to tell me that. It's just as simple as, sure, I can show you no problem, which 
warning, sometimes people can't teach each other. The spouse is very difficult, but that's, that wasn't the case here. So I said, I want to take the boat out by myself without you on it, which is pretty funny because we lived on it, right? <laughs> and he said, no problem. I'll Wait, go find something else back? to do. <laughs> so I took, well, I said by myself, uh, but I, I really met keys before she <laughs> <laughs> many of our, our boat neighbors, the women tended to be the deckhands. And they all said, we'll be your deckhand. We'll be your deckhand. So I learned, but the first thing I had to learn before I was going to learn to drive the boat was learn to prepare the boat to be driven. So I had to learn to get in the engine room and check the fluids and what's important and what's normal looking and what's not normal looking so that you can at least um, identify something as a problem. You may not really know what it is, but it shouldn't be dripping like that or it shouldn't be making that noise or it shouldn't be that temperature. So it was really important for me to learn that part of it. And that was another issue that when we really started cruising full time was extremely helpful because in the beginning you think, well, I was just the boat rider, it was fine. But then you're gonna go and you're gonna be together 24 seven. And who's the expert here? Well, if only one of you is the expert, that's a lot of pressure on that one person. And it's also not a whole lot of fun when you've been an expert in something else. And now you come to the table and you've gotta take orders or you've got to feel like it, even if they're not barking orders at you, you tend to feel that way. So get past it and step up and learn. And the more you learn, the less fearful it is and the more fun it is. Then there's a bonus and that bonus is it's a lot easier to drive the boat than it is to schlep the lines because those lines, the bigger the boat, are heavier and bigger and thicker and a lot more likely that you're gonna be out in the weather versus in the comfort of being at the helm. So it turned out to be, quite frankly, do you wanna drive? Do you want to drive? Who wants to drive today? No problem. Let's talk about division of labor. Um, when you're navigating long voyages, what are some of the responsibilities involved? Maybe pertaining to shifts and watches. A lot of people watch TV and they think that you've got a four hour shift. Yeah. Mm. And then uh, we work with a lot of people who are going to make a, a straight voyage from maybe Stewart, where the Trawler Fest is today, up to Annapolis or to um, the Chesapeake Bay, and it's about 100 hours in a trawler in the ocean, even with the help of the Gulf Stream a little bit, it's 100 hours. So if you're out in the ocean, you think, okay, you'll do four, and then you'll do four, you'll do four, you'll do four, I'll do four, and then we'll go back. And we think, no, we're not in the Navy. You'll drive as long as you want, and when you don't feel comfortable, then you tap the number two person saying, okay, uh, go wash your face, get ready, you're up in 10 minutes. The number two person takes the helm. The number one person goes down and gets clean sleep away from the radio, away from conversations, away from the smell of coffee. But the number three guy moves to the number two position. We're talking about ocean voyaging and we're not talking about going to Europe, we're talking about going to the Chesapeake, still ocean voyaging. So you still have two people near the wheel. The first guy retired, clean sleep. The fourth guy still getting clean sleep, just number two and number three moved up one notch. And we feel that's a smarter way to do it. If you can drive six hours, great. If you can drive one hour, that's fine. Be smart. If you start doing a head nod and you're not able to stay awake because it's three o'clock in the morning and most of us are not night owls and can't stay up that time, there's no point in you being at the helm. 
you need to tap the next person and say, I got to sleep for a little bit. But the fun part about night shift, the submarines off of Kings Point, Georgia, <laughs> off of Norfolk, Virginia, you get to see some weird stuff in the middle of the night yeah. out in the ocean. So for our listeners out there who may be new to all this, what's the fastest way to gain confidence in situations? Well, situations like that and knowing what to do or what not to do when something goes bump in the night. Experience. Making the mistake and surviving. (laughs) Yeah. Like I said, Chris comes from a commercial background. He was running crew boats out to the oil rigs when he was 18 years old. I learned by seeing, by him pointing out, do you see the difference in that water surface over there? That's where that that uh, partially submerged um, container is. Um, We've seen seen, uh, overturned um, small boats that probably got loose off of somebody's that that were were towing it or something like that. We've seen um, uh, um, weather buoys that have gotten loose and they're not lit. So you do have to be aware that there are things out there, which is why we would not recommend night traveling initially because you want to get some experience to know your comfort level of your boat, how the systems are working, what what you know you're going to see out there, and then go do it the first time you do a night run, do it in a place that you're very familiar with in the daytime, and you'll see how different things look. Your depth perception is different. Maybe have some different tools, like we like to use a, a night uh, vision monocular so that you can see without putting on Q-beam and illuminating it that way. We even found a boat with machine gun holes in it, oh, yeah. upside down. We called the Coast Guard and said, we don't know anything about that. <laughs> Rudy, can you tell us about that boat? <laughs> what are some of the weirder things you've seen underway? One thing that stands out in my mind, we were northbound off Georgia. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. I looked up. We had our drifter up, and there was this um, mud wasp nest being built on the foot of the sail. Now, we're 15 miles offshore, and I thought, I just put the sail up two hours ago, and that nest wasn't there, and they don't build them that quick. It was it was about the size of your palm. So I got up, and I walked up, and I looked, and there's this bat hanging onto the foot of the sail upside <laughs> down, taking a break. So you find a lot of interesting things that you just wouldn't find on land. It's fun. When we talk about trawler owners, we're talking about a community, uh, a big, small family, if you will, lots of camaraderie. What does that all mean to you? What we've found is many times you'll make friends or meet other cruisers, you know, spend time with them, have dinner, have cocktails, cocktails, whatever you want to call it, and then maybe hear from them occasionally, but then all of a sudden two years down the road you're in the Bahamas, and there they are. They pop back up, and so you get to, you know, reestablish your friendship and find out what they've been doing, share CC stories. So it's a good community that's well In one sense, it's a big community. In the other sense, it's a very small community. Mm-hmm. Also, as far as identification, who's who? We're Fred's parents. Who's Fred? <laughs> Our yellow Labrador. <laughs> or we belong to Sandy Hook. We don't have names. We live on Sandy Hook, and Fred is our dog. That's all people know. Yeah. But you're right. We're a little different than many. But it's kind of a good thing. You meet people who you would otherwise never have met because we all come from so many different walks of life. We come from different, you know, many times if, you, if you're working in a job that you've had for five years, 10 years, 15 years, that's kind of rare these days, right? But um, you make friends at your job, you make friends at your church. And then when you go cruising 
Everybody's got that in common. And they may come from completely different backgrounds, completely different socioeconomic backgrounds, and yet it doesn't matter because we all have that commonality of we're cruising. And, and the assistance is amazing. The people that you take under your wing when you're the more experienced and, and they less or vice versa. A very, very dear friend of mine who, like you said, you see maybe once every three or four years. Um, we met the first year that we were out long term and she was a sailboater, but she might think, all right, you don't have a lot in common, trawlers and sailboaters, but she was a nurse and she took me under her wing with what brings you joy? What kind of things are you having issues with? And she shared what worked for her. And, and some of the things that she shared with me, I've been able to pass on as well. And, and I, whenever I'll do certain tasks, I remember them by remembering her. Boat cards. Ah, yes. Who are you? I'm a retired brain surgeon. Who are you? I'm a, a criminal defense attorney. Who are you? I'm a car mechanic. I'm the Does it matter? <laughs> We're Chris and Elise, and our boat is Sandy Hook. That's all that matters. You're a boat owner. You're a cruiser. That's all that matters. Well, that wraps up this episode of Trawler Talk. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Today's episode has been brought to you by Outer Reef Yachts. As a leading manufacturer of award-winning long-range motor yachts, Outer Reef specializes in building robust blue water yachts, offering luxury, efficiency, safety, and technological ingenuity. With boats ranging from 58 to 115 feet, Outer Reef has the perfect model to suit any cruising lifestyle. To learn more, visit OuterReefYachts.com. Stay tuned for more episodes of Trawler Talk coming soon. And remember, for all your cruising needs, you can get your daily dose of Trawler Zen at PassageMaker.com. For Trawler Talk and Passage Maker Magazine, I'm Andrew Parkinson.